great stories from amazing people. Conversations from the Marsh at Podcast Alley. This is Sports and More with Dean Millard. No question there was conversations about it. And I do know for a fact the players, there is concern. Um, there's there's going to be concern from everybody involved. But again, when, when it's been laid out the way it's been laid out and how they've been very diligent in, in the measures they've taken to make sure that people are abiding by the rules. And if you cross over and break those rules or you do have a positive test that they take it very seriously. And they're, they're not, they're not, you know, cutting any corners, so to speak. When it, when it happens, they're taking it very seriously as they should. And, you know, they're trying to minimize that danger as much as possible. And I think because of that, I think the players are now understanding that if they do their part, if they stay inside their bubbles, inside their respective groups and come to the rink and abide by the rules, the chances of contracting this virus are very slim. It's not impossible. I, I still do think we probably will have some cases. There's no question. I just think it's almost impossible not to. That is former NHLer and current Hockey Night in Canada, Canada analyst Louis DeBrusque, whose son Jake is in the bubble playing for the Boston Bruins. And uh, there was a conversation that that family had to have about the health conditions uh, and the and the health risks moving forward. Welcome to Sports and More episode 53 where almost anything goes. For the most part, we stay away from politics. From the most part, uh, almost always we stay away from religion. But almost anything goes. My name is Dean Millard. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on what time you've downloaded this. I'm just glad you are listening on the show today. As mentioned, Louis DeBrusque will join us. We're going to do a big playoff preview specifically on the Oilers Hawks, but we'll touch every other uh, series as well. We're going to talk about what the expectations for the players in the bubble might be. What happens if there's a nasty game and two guys meet at the pot machine after, are they going to drop the, uh, the mitts, so to say in the bubble or, you know, do cooler heads prevail after a while? I mean, think back to uh, the last time the Oilers made the playoffs. You know the game I'm talking about. The pad grab. You think those guys want to meet up in the bubble after? No. So we're going to talk about what life in the bubble is going to be like. We're also going to discuss the Coyotes situation. What's going on there? And not everybody gets traded for one of the greatest leaders of all time. But Louis DeBrusque was in a package for Marc Messier. There were other guys involved, but still a big deal. We'll discuss life after the dynasty as an oiler, what that was like playing, following in the footsteps of Gretzky, Messier, Curry, Fuhr, all these guys, coffee, unbelievable, and what it's like as a broadcaster when his son is playing. We're also going to do word association with some of his uh, former teammates. All right, the weekly tribute this week, uh, and I try to do this every show, is going out to uh, any civil rights leaders, past or present. And before you start hitting me up with emails or text messages that I that I just said we stay away from politics, I don't think standing up to racism and, and providing civil rights is political. I think it's human. It should be human nature. 
If you're against racism, then you're a dick. I'm sorry. That's just plain and simple. So John Lewis just recently passed away. He's lying in state at the uh, Capitol. He was famously part of the group that walked across the bridge uh, at Selma. And there's a, you know, a great movie. I'd love to see a movie more in depth about uh, John Lewis. There are a lot of uh, actual civil rights leaders that I would like to see movies about. Angela Davis, I would like to see a movie about her. There's a lot of people that I would love to see movies about that you know we, we don't always hear about. So anyway, um, that's my weekly tribute uh, to all the civil rights leaders past and present who uh, are standing up for injustice, racism, sexism, homophobia, all that stuff. It just, it, it's not good for anybody. You know, Daryl Davis is another guy I would like to see a movie on. This is a guy who, as a black man, not infiltrated, it's not Black Klansman, um, that movie, that's a great movie, but it's, uh, he, he basically convinced, you know, over, I don't know, 60 to 100 members of the Klan to quit. So anyway, civil rights leaders past and present is uh, who gets the uh, weekly tribute today. All right, let's get into our top three presented by Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. This is the most realistic fantasy platform out there. There are only 31 teams, but soon to be 32 thanks to the Kraken. By the way, I love that name and I love the logo. So anyway, this is what happens. Uh, there's going to be some sort of uh, auction for the 32nd franchise. So keep your eyes peeled on that. But right now, if you didn't get in as an owner, you can become a scout. That's right. You can scout prospects. The same guys that the NHL scouts uh, are watching, you can watch, you can list. And then when they get auctioned to owners like me that are in this platform, you get the money. Check it out at www.uffsports.com. In this format, you own the game, so get in the game. Top three today is teams you think can make a surprise run to the cup final. Has to be a lower seed in the play-in round. What three teams do you think uh, could make a strong run to the final. My honorable mention is the Arizona Coyotes. Just everything is like turmoil around these guys with John Chica leaving the team. Maybe they rally together. You know, maybe Antti Ranta gets hot. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Taylor Hall, we'll see what happens. But that's uh, my honorable mention. Number three is the Rangers, just because they have one of the most skilled players in the game in Artemi Panarin. And... Who knows what Henrik Lundqvist might do now that he is rested. So that's an important uh, aspect for there. Uh, number two for me is the uh, Blue Jackets. This is a team, look at what happened last year in the playoffs. Yeah, they're a different team now, but it's the same philosophy. It's the same coach. And I think that the Blue Jackets definitely... Uh, could be spoilers in this play-in round. And number one is the Jets. And sure, 
You might not say they're uh, an under-ranked uh, team, but they are lower ranked. They are ninth in that series against Calgary. And I think if Connor Hellebuck stands on his head, he's probably going to win the Vesna. They could go to the cup final. So they hit me up on Twitter, at Duck Millard. What teams, your top three teams that you think can make a run to the Stanley Cup final. You can get more details on the Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports platform at www.uffsports.com. And check out Podcast Alley. We'll have one-timers with Louis DeBrusque in a few days. Tracking the draft with Craig Button featured Cole Perfetti as our top-shelf talent. Craig gave him a 6 out of 5 on the uh, IQ test. And on the Cannabis 101 podcast, uh, we're going to talk with uh, Stigma Grow out of Red Deer. Local cannabis company will also do one hitters. You can check out all of those podcasts and more at podcastalley.ca. All right, Louis DeBrusque, after we get to know him in the bio. Time for the bio. Louis DeBrusque was born in Galt, Ontario, and raised in Port Elgin, about two and a half hours northwest of Toronto. He left home at 16 to play Junior B in Stratford, Ontario, before joining the London Knights a year later. The New York Rangers drafted him in the third round in 1989, but he would never play a regular season game with the Blue Shirts, as he was traded one game into the 1991 season to Edmonton in a package for Mark Messier. He spent six seasons in Edmonton before signing in Tampa Bay for one year. A trade to the then Phoenix Coyotes had him in the desert for parts of three seasons before wrapping up his NHL career with the Chicago Blackhawks. He retired in 04-05 during the lockout and joined the Coyotes broadcast team in 2005 before returning home to Edmonton three years later, where he is now a color analyst with Hockey Night in Canada. Louis, it is great to uh, catch up with you. Um, I always enjoyed our time at the rink and discussing what is uh, happening. And that's uh, what, what you'll be doing, and but in a much different way. Um, I guess let's start with expectations for what life in the hub city bubble is going to be. And, 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 and I guess what, what your routine is as far as calling the games uh, when they start on Saturday. Yeah. You know, that's going to be the big question. And I think that I don't want to say concern going into this, but obviously from the player's perspective, coaches, trainers, anyone that's inside that bubble, uh, you're confined. There's no question about it. You're, you're in a space where you're meant to be. You're not really going to have, too much luxury of going other places and that's just the world you're going to live in for the length of time that you're still playing games and and fighting for the stanley cup so i think that's a positive because if you're there for a long time you're doing well and your team's winning but there's no question there'll be some adjustments you're going to have to find some things to keep yourself busy i do believe once they start really digging into the games though just from being a player myself i know that you don't really want to do a lot of other things it's not like you have a ton of time on your hands anyway um there, there's practice there's meetings there's games there's feed you know you have to eat three four times a day you're continually getting rehab and working on little injuries that arise your days are pretty full so there's not a whole lot of free time to begin with so um if there was a time to be in a bubble i think that's 
the playoffs are a good time to be in the bubble. So I'm hoping that the players can take a positive attitude on that. And it seems like they really are. They've really been committed. And I have to commend the players for that up until this point. Um, feedback from the first couple of days in the bubble has been great. Um, the league has done a great job at setting it up. So the players have things to do, areas to go. The security around it is, is amazing. And so far, so good with the um, testing for COVID, which is amazing. Getting, you know, 24 teams, 12 respectively to each hub, uh, safely which is the number one priority through this whole thing which is great so as far as my my duties i'll be you know not inside the bubble i'll have designated areas that i will travel through to get to and from the press box where i'll be calling the games from and uh from what i understand it'll be in do the game and out and that's just the way it has to be i mean unless you're in the bubble you have to stay on the perimeter and there'll only be certain areas you're allowed to go to and you know, Dean, to be honest, it'll be a feel-out session for me tomorrow doing the first exhibition game. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll figure that out on the fly, and uh, we'll see how it goes. You know, Daryl Cates, uh, for what we heard, lobbied very hard uh, to have Edmonton be one of the <laughs> hub cities. And, you know, I, I have to think that they were looking at this saying, this is an opportunity to get, you know, 12 teams and, you know, at least, well, 12 teams in our city in the best time of the year as opposed to the airport to the rink uh view that they get in the winter could this do you think this is something that could impact you know potential free agents down the road that say hey this city isn't that bad when it's not february or whatever it might be and there is some other nice things to do here if you're living here full-time yeah no question i Listen, let's face it. We live here, and in the wintertime, this is a robust place to live. There's no mm-hmm. question. You wake up in the morning, it can be minus 30, minus 40-something with the wind chill. Um, it's a different element. And as, as an opposing team coming in, you're right. You're kind of limited to what you're seeing. It's, it's kind of a straight line from the airport to downtown, downtown to rink, rink to hotel. But you know what? This gives people an opportunity to see the city in a different light. And I think that's a great thing for Evanston. It's a great thing for the players that are coming in here from different cities that maybe haven't been to this part of the world at this time. A couple beautiful days here um, while they've come into the city, and I think that's that's great. And as you mentioned, Daryl Cates wants to show off his city, wants to show off his facility and make people understand that this is a proud group here that is very um, proud of what they put put forth here and they want people to see that so I, I think it could lead in the future to people looking at this in a different way a different light i hope it does because i'm an edmontonian i live here and although we do complain about the weather quite a bit uh it is a beautiful place to live and it's an amazing uh, city so i hope they get to see some of that well yeah and they can see some of the city in the summertime and say oh well there's even you know it's not minus 40 all the time there will be other things yeah. to do outside uh, in the winter and, and good for families. And, you know, the, I, I think the NHL, you know, they came out with their uh, numbers that there were like no, no positive tests out of the yeah. amount that were taken over 4,000. So they've done such a good job as opposed to you look like what's going on in major league baseball. And, you know, you and I are recording this on Monday, this episode's going to come out Tuesday, who knows what's going to change between yeah. now and then with major league baseball, but the risk for players, I just, I wonder how this is going to happen if a player tests positive. I I mean, I'm joking here, but if you're not on his line, are you okay? Like, I don't know how this works. And, 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 you know, this is a risk for players. One of which is your son who's playing in the, in the other side. Um, You know, was there ever any conversations with you guys about like, Hey, is this, is this, you know, safe or, you know, what was that like for a family for you guys? 
No question there was conversations about it. And I do know for a fact the players, there is concern. Um, there's there's going to be concern from everybody involved. But again, when, when it's been laid out the way it's been laid out and how they've been very diligent in, in the measures they've taken to make sure that people are abiding by the rules. And if you cross over and break those rules or you do have a positive test that they take it very seriously and they're, they're not, they're not, you know, cutting any corners, so to speak. When it, when it happens, they're taking it very seriously as they should. And, you know, they're trying to minimize that danger as much as possible. And I think because of that, I think the players are now understanding that if they do their part, if they stay inside their bubbles, inside their respective groups and come to the rink and abide by the rules, the chances of, contracting this virus are very slim it's not impossible i i still do think we probably will have some cases there's no question i just think it's almost impossible not to but cross your fingers maybe they don't once they're inside the bubbles it looks like it's pretty locked down Dean. you you see the video of it Mm -hmm. we had a meeting today and we got to get a little bit of a video tour of it and i'll tell you what it's uh the security the barricades the designated places you can go it's listen it's very strict and uh, that's the way it has to be, though. That's the way it has to be if they want to make this go. And uh, listen, they're there to try and do a job. They're there to win a Stanley Cup, uh, buckle down for a couple of months. And if you're there in a couple of months, you've done a great job. So I think players understand that. It's a unique opportunity. And I think they're really taking the positive approach to it, which seems to be the trend that I'm seeing from players when they speak and when they talk and coaches and management do it together. It, it's going it, to it's going to be unique. It'll be different, but I also think that you can, you can make it special. You can make it a great time. You're going to be really close knit group. You're going to be way closer after this because you're going to go through this together. Um, I think, I think it'll be a special moment for a lot of these players and, you know, let's cross our fingers and hope that they stay healthy. For sure. And uh, it wouldn't be uh, a lead up to uh, a big hockey event without uh, a big story uh, taking mm-hmm. place before it. And John Chica leaving the Coyotes, uh, Steve Sullivan taking over. And um, I, I, I'm just, this is such a weird situation, especially the way the Coyotes seem to get in front of it. And, you know, using the word quitting and we're hearing, you know, Elliot Friedman, uh, your colleague at Hockey Night in Canada, uh, in his 31 thoughts, talking about uh, the Devils being the uh, front runner because there's also the Philadelphia 76ers, Crystal Palace of the Premier League, and then they're trying to buy the Mets. So there's something else besides hockey. But what do you make of this split? You you've been in that market in uh, in Arizona. They just want some stability there, don't they? Yeah, no question. It's it's another one of those stories you just don't like seeing happen, especially the timing of it. But to be honest with you, there's been statements made by both sides. John Chica came out and made his statement, said he's not going to talk about this. Obviously, right now, doesn't want to be a distraction. Steve Sullivan, someone he's worked with for a while, somebody that I've played with uh, as a member of the Chicago Blackhawks, you know, is stepping in there right now. And there's there's never a good time for it, but this is maybe one of the worst times for something like this to happen. And you hope that it doesn't distract the Arizona Coyotes uh, and what their mission is, because I think they're a team that was on the rise at the end of the year. They're a team that plays a certain way. Rick Pocket has them playing a real hard-nosed, aggressive style of game, and I think they can surprise some people uh, throughout this qualifying round and into the playoffs. But you know what? I, I honestly don't know all the details, and we will find out the details when this comes out, but uh, never a good situation when something like this happens uh, going into uh, the playoffs like it is now. 
All right, let's get into some of this playoff talk now that we can finally, it, it feels so good to say that, doesn't it? That we can finally start yeah. previewing this and, and you know, not speculating on who's healthy and who's not and who's in. And we've got the Oilers and the Hawks. And uh, man, I, I grew up watching these two teams play in the playoffs and the Oilers just light up guys like Warren Skordinsky and Murray Bannerman in the, uh, in the conference finals and things like that. So I'm excited to see that, especially with some of the skill involved in this series. Oh. I mean, you have uh, some of the best puck handlers in the NHL going head-to-head in this series. There's a ton of skill, especially in the forward position. I just, it's, you know, this could be a real run-and-gun type of the game. Um, and I truly don't know who that benefits more. I think it might benefit the Hawks a little more. If, if it's a real stingy, hard-nosed, grinding type of a style of game, I think it, it definitely would be more beneficial for Evans to play that type of game with the game breakers they have to be able to make the big players at appropriate times. But let's face it, you've got experience on the Hawks side. You've got Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, two of the best in the game um, that have won three Stanley Cups, know how to win. Duncan Keith, I mean, he's getting older, but he certainly doesn't look at when he's on the ice. He still plays almost 30 minutes and is capable of doing that, you know, 25 plus minutes. Uh, this will be an interesting series. It's going to be exciting because of that talent. I think Chicago has put together some real good young talent that, you know, is going to give Edmonton a handful. They're going to give them some trouble. Um, but I look at the back end of, of Chicago, and that's the area that, for me, Edmonton has to try and exploit. And that's where they have to try and play the game for the most part is make them defend. And if they do that, I think they've got a great chance at winning this series. And then Golton, you know, Corey Crawford, there's some intrigue there because he, he didn't show up. He mm-hmm. was, he tested positive for COVID. He's been skating, but he's a veteran player again. Um, that's won Stanley Cups and knows how to put it on the line at the right time. I don't see them not throwing him into the mix. And listen, this could go one of two ways. He could not stop a beach ball or he could, you know, not let a BB go by him. I mean, you don't know what you're going to get from Corey Crawford, but I do know that he's a mentally strong individual and he's going to get in there and wants to do the best for his team. And that could also motivate his team to play a little harder in front of him too, because they know the situation that he's in. Every single one of these series is intriguing to me. And every single one of these series, in my opinion, can go either way. And that's what makes this so special is that everybody's rested for the most part, people are healthy and they're ready to get after it. But this series could be a high flying, super offensive series uh, with both teams going at it. So we, we know the Oilers, you know, this year for the, for the first time that, you know, I can remember in this sort of new era with McDavid, Dreisaitl, et cetera, they finally had some, some balance scoring and, and they finally made teams say, Hey, we got to choose who we're going to defend. Are we going to defend McDavid's line? Are we going to defend Dreisaitl's line? And we know Nugent Hopkins, McDavid, Cassian uh, were great before. Is it? Do you think Tyler Ennis is going to get the first shot with Dreisaitl and Yamamoto? Looks to be that way. And, you know, when you look at the Nugent Hopkins, Dreisaitl, Yamamoto line, there's no arguing that that line had the most chemistry of any line throughout the season. When they were put together, when Yamamoto came up and started to play on that line, they just took off. And they had an instant chemistry. And I was surprised, to be honest with you, Dean, and they broke that line up. Not to say they couldn't go back to that line, but I think they wanted to spread the wealth out and have Nugent Hopkins with McDavid. They want to have a stronger one-two punch to balance that out and make them that much harder to defend against. And Tyler Ennis is a player that steps right in there, can play quickly, has the puck on a stick, can make a play in, in a heartbeat has tremendous skill with it, is not afraid to go to the dirty areas for a smaller player. Uh, he's done some real nice things, and he's been a real nice pickup for Edmonton, made them faster, quicker. So, yeah, I think he'll start on that left side with Dreisel and Yamamoto, and, 
you know, I guess it'll be a work in progress. Uh, Dave Tippett has talked all along that if something isn't working, then they're not going to be shy to change it up and mix things up and put different people in different situations, give them opportunities. Um, but they have some depth here. They have some options. Um, Andreas Athanasio is another player that came in, didn't have the year that he wanted to have this year. But from watching him and seeing him in skate the other day, watching some of the video of scrimmages, it looks like he's got his legs underneath him again. He can fly. And if he can bring that type of a pace down in the bottom six, it just makes you that much deeper and that much harder to match up against. And I think that's what the Edmonton Oilers are going to need. They're going to need production from everybody. They're going to need everybody to come in and do their part. Um, listen, this is something they, the coaching staff, breaks down and goes over way more than we do. They sit here and discuss these things and break these things down. They're trying to put together the best combinations to give them the best chance to win on a nightly basis. And uh, this is what they feel they have right now to go forward, and we'll see what happens. Ryan Nugent Hopkins, uh, I think, has been the biggest uh, benefactor of of the depth because he's finally had some quality and consistent line mates and would have probably reached the 70-point plateau, I think, uh, for the first time in his uh, career this year. But uh, the guy that uh, I think has surprised me the most was Kyler Yamamoto. Um, I, I kept telling everybody that asked me, wait, let's just wait, let's just wait. Let's see if he'll hit a wall, hit a wall. I don't know if he would have, but he never did. And just the the, the chemistry between him and Dreisaitl, did, did you see it like instantly when they got put together? I didn't. You know, honestly, I didn't. And I, I here's the thing. The thing about Yamamoto for me was, even in the games that he came up, the previous years where he was in the mix, he would, he would get so many chances. He would just create so much, but he just couldn't finish. You know, it just wasn't going in the net for him. And he'd have a dandy chance every single game that he played. It was like, wow, this guy just knows how to get to a spot at the right time. And if he can ever learn to finish those off, then he'll be a very dangerous player. That's an instinct that's really hard to teach. You know, players either have that or they don't have that. And Yamamoto has that. The other thing that I didn't realize, too, and, and, and it became very clear early when Dave Tippett had him out there in the last minute of a game with an open net. And he knocked down the puck and made a great defensive play, and then they went down and he scored. And that, to me, I was like, wow, that's a lot of confidence shown in a young player to be out there in a crucial time in a hockey game. And that, to me, was where I think you just saw the confidence bloom with Yamamoto. The tenacity that he, he forechecks with, he's amazing at turning over pucks. And when you're playing with a player like Leon Dreisaitl, the most important thing is trying to get the puck on his stick as much as possible. And with Yamamoto there and Nugent Hopkins, two guys that play fast and quick that can dig and win those puck battles, it just, it just they just took off. I mean, you cannot create chemistry. I, I mean, teams have tried to buy it over the years. It just never works. It doesn't work. You either have it or you don't. That line had it, no question. And there's no question there was a real chemistry between Dreisel and Yamamoto. They love to play with each other. And where it became evident there was the conversations after games when you started to hear Leon Dreisel talk about Yamamoto saying he really loved playing with him. Um, when a player of his caliber says, listen, I like playing with this guy, mm -hmm. coaches listen, they're not going to change that up. And good on them. You know what? This is what you want from your organization. You want players to develop. You want players to go down, work on their skills. And when they come up and have their opportunity, you want them to succeed. That's what it's all about. And you've got to grab those reins as a player. So you have to give a lot of credit to Yamamoto that given that opportunity, he took full advantage of it. He was a game changer. He, he made things a lot different for the Edmonton Oilers. And I don't think there's been enough really said about that, how he's, he came in and allowed them to separate McDavid, Drysdale, and have two potent lines. Um, because truthfully, Connor McDavid can 
pretty much play with two of me and right. probably still have 100 points in the season. You know, let's face it. And I, I truly believe that. I think that, but you know what? To give him a little bit more help makes him even that much more dangerous. Yeah. And I think that it's, you know, now it's now you're he's a real handful each and every night. Yeah, and, and Cassian uh, does such a good job on, on that other side. Where does where does all this leave a guy like James Neal? Um, one of the big issues with the Oilers <clears throat> early in the season and, and dating back to past years was a lack of scoring from the bottom six. Is that where you're hoping James Neal can, can help out in that bottom six? And I, I just don't look at James Neal and think third, fourth line guy. I, you know, maybe that's wrong yeah. of me, but what's, what's your thought on James Neal and all this? I understand it. I understand it because you're seeing other teams do it. And you're seeing some veteran players that are down the lineup column to create that depth. It's a different game now. So you're going to roll your lines. You're going to, you're going to get your minutes. Um, and then, as you mentioned, if you can find a favorable matchup in the bottom six, now you're winning that matchup. And that's really important. For James Neal, though, he's going to get his power play time too. He's going to get his chances. There will be some shuffling due to penalties and penalty killing and situations in games where I'm sure you're going to see him jump up and down the lineup column and be plugged in and played in different situations. But no question, you have to have the depth. You have to have the depth scoring in your system now, and that's what they're looking to do. They're trying to even this balance out, and they want to make sure that no matter who they throw over the boards in any situation can play against anybody, number one, and win some matchups. That's that's the key situation that they want. And, We'll see what happens there. It's on the players, though. It's really important for the players to understand where they are. And you look at Alex Chason, too, had a career high last year in goals and came in, and he's on that fourth line right now with Kajar Kara at center. They're a big line. They're physical. They can they can grind pucks in corners, and they can score some dirty goals. And I think that's in the playoffs. That could go really well for them. And the other thing, let's remember, is that there's uh, at least an extra three games before they even get to the playoffs. And then, if you want to go on a long run, you're going to need different guys. And I don't I don't know of any team that's ever won a Stanley Cup without guys getting hurt. So there's always going to be that opportunity where a guy goes down, and you got to step up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're gonna. It's, Every team's going to have that, and every team is going to be looking at that. And let's face it, if a couple games into this qualifying round, it's not going very well, there'll be changes. There just there just will. It's You don't have time to ease into this and hope people pan out. This is, it's go time right from the get-go. And I consider this qualifying round playoffs. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. fifth round. Yep. So, you know, unfortunately, that's just the reality of how this has happened with the COVID pandemic, that this means you're walking into really important hockey right out of the gate. So there's no kind of warm up here. It's let's go, let's get after it. And as we've seen over the course of time, coaches become very impatient quickly when things aren't happening the way they want them to happen. So if you are staying the same and the line combinations stay exactly the same, then that means only one thing you're winning. And that's a good thing. But like I said, I think that there'll be a lot of shuffling, a lot of young guys that maybe get opportunities, changing fresh legs. Um, There's a lot of different mentalities that go into this because it is a marathon, but it's a shorter marathon with the way they're packing this together. All right. You mentioned the blue line. That's uh, I think uh, a big streak. Like I think the Oilers have the edge up front, but it's, it's closer than it is on the blue line. And, you know, look at, I thought Matt Benning had a great season and, and I was thinking a couple years ago, two years ago that maybe Matt Benning um, wasn't going to be an Oiler, but I thought he really turned it around despite uh, battling some injuries. Uh, It sounds like Darnell nurse is, uh, is okay. Now, what do you like about this six guys right now and then the couple of guys that are just chomping at the bit to fill in <laughs> if anybody drops out 
Well, I, I do like the fact there are players chomping at the bit, and I think any organization would say the same thing. You want to have people that are pushing internally. And you always hear general managers and coaches talk about that. They want that internal competition. They want it to be where, listen, you need to know that if you don't bring your A game, then you can be replaced. And you know what? That's typically when players play their best. When they're pushed into that situation and you know you're on the line each and every night, it's a stress-filled situation, but it brings out the best in players. That's when they play their best. But I agree with you. The thing I like about the combinations right now, familiarity. You know, Oscar Kloffbaum has played with Larson. Darnell Nurse and Ethan Bear had a great chemistry this year, and they played for the most part together, and they did very well together. Chris Russell, Matt Benning, they played together. These are all familiar situations for these defense pairings. And let's face it, they have to shuffle that up. They've done that before, too. If there's an injury or something happens or someone maybe doesn't play that well up to par, there's people they can inject in there. And no question, Broberg has come in and had a terrific camp. Um, and potentially, you know, maybe he gets a sniff in there from time to time. We'll have to see. Evan Bouchard is another one. Um, Caleb Jones is another one that can play left or right. So he's versatile in that sense. Got off to a little bit of a slow start with the COVID uh, positive test but you know what he's back in the mix he's an excellent skater and he's another option too that's showing he can be thrown right in there so having depth at this position having players you can inject in and feel comfortable to inject in is great but again going back to what i said before if the combinations stay the same then that means one thing it means you're playing well and you're winning and that's what everybody wants to do at this time and to do that and to go on a run you need great goaltending and um, yeah. the edmonton oilers got great goaltending from both guys at different times this year is do you think this is miko koskinen's net to start in and and lose so to speak if if mike smith is going to come in it's going to be an injury or koskinen struggles or what do you think happens i I'm, i really don't know uh, I know that there's a history with Dave Tippett and, and Mike Smith, and he was outstanding. And the last time he played the Chicago Blackhawks eight years ago in the playoffs, he was he, he was the reason they won the series, from what I've been told. He was incredible in that series. And I know that was eight years ago. Eight years is a long time. He's, he's not getting any younger. But there's that competitive edge and a mindset that he brings with it. So Dave Tippett has talked all along about the fact that he's used both goaltenders all year long, and he expects to use both goaltenders throughout this this qualifying round in playoffs and i think that's a good attitude to take now if one guy steps out to the forefront and plays outstanding then you're going to ride with him you're going to run with him as much as you can and that's just the way it's always been when it comes down to the playoffs and i consider this qualifying round to be a playoff series so um it's interesting you know what uh throughout camp costin has played a little bit better there's been some more chances maybe the other, other way going to mike smith I think this one will play itself out. I really do. I think that the guy that goes in there and grabs those reins and plays the best, they're both going to get opportunities, but the guy that grabs the reins is going to be the guy they run. And that's how they did it all year. Team, They did it that way. If mm -hmm. the guy was playing well, they started to run him. When he started to falter a bit, the other guy was excellent at going in there and picking up the spot. And I, and I, I think that's really important to have the ability to know that you have confidence in both guys. Because uh, this will be a grind like no other. This will be a unique grind for every team that's involved in this. And having goaltending depth is not a bad thing. All right, before quickly we look at the other series, what? Just I just want this scenario. Hard-fought playoff game gets really rough and intense, and then two guys meet at the pot machine in in the hotel. Like, what do you what do you think that like? What do you think Louis DeBrusque would have been like in the bubble as a player after a tough game like that? 
Oh, geez, you know, it really depends. But I think that better heads will prevail. You know, it's amazing. It used to be the old school. I remember I fought Gene Ojek one night. We bumped into each other and Barry Tees and had a beer together. <laughs> it wasn't a big deal. You know what I mean? Like, we sat there and laughed it up, and then a couple games later, we fought again. It was just like, that's kind of what it's all about, right? You just... You understand it's a job. You check your card when you go in there. You do your best and do what you have to do, and then you come back out. And as much as players hate to admit it right now and in, in their during their careers, when you're older like myself and you're out of the game, you had enough. You had the utmost respect for the opponent. Mm-hmm. You really did. You know, it's it's really it's even the guys that you despise, you didn't like. You had the respect of them because you understood that what they were doing was effective. If they're making you feel that way, they're doing something right. So. It'll be interesting. I think guys will really try and stay in their own little mixes, but I think more so, more so now than ever, players know each other. Right. It, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have phones, we didn't have the information that we have in the different platforms that we have now. So it was all about, you know, who is this guy? I remember going into games and saying, you know, hey, does anybody know this guy, the <laughs> six foot five monster they're throwing into the lineup tonight? Is he a tough guy? Is he not a tough guy? What's the deal? And you were going into those situations blind a lot of times if somebody on your team didn't play with this guy, mm-hmm. didn't know this guy. Um, nowadays, that doesn't happen. Everybody knows everybody, and uh, I don't think it'll be a problem. I really don't. All right, so we all want to see some sort of battle of Alberta uh, at some point. We want <laughs> to see that again, but we'll have to settle for the old Smythe Flames Jets, uh, at least in the first round. Let me get one thought per series from you, and let's start with the old Smythe division battle, Flames and Jets really close series in my opinion i think it's you know maybe one of the closer matchups i do believe goaltending is going to be the factor though i really do hellebuck has the nod he's been the better goaltender this year when he's on his game he's one of the best in the game and rightfully so of as the candidate he's, he's he's a terrific goaltender and as he goes the winnipeg jets go and they have a lot of firepower to back that up if he can weather that storm on the flip side, David Riddick struggled a little bit down the stretch. He was excellent early in the season, though. He was the starter. And then Cam Talbot came on strong in the end. So mm. there's a couple options there, and there's some uncertainty there. I don't know who Jeff Ward's going to start necessarily in the first game. You might want to try and give it to Riddick to see if he can ride how he did at the start of the year because he got into a real nice rhythm. But Cam Talbot was really, really good down the stretch. And goaltending will be the factor for me. Though. I, I think that both teams can score. Both teams can play a hard game. I, I believe it's going to be the, the goaltenders that uh, put the best games forward that's going to win that series. That's just my opinion. Canucks and Wild. Yeah, this one's interesting to me, and I, I, I think you have to be a little concerned with the Minnesota Wild because one thing about this pandemic is that it's made everybody reflect. And the Minnesota Wild have some older players on that team that are not getting any younger, and they understand that their opportunities are getting less and less. And they'll be motivated. There's going to be motivation because of that. On the flip side, there, there's some good things happening in Vancouver. They're a young, um, very talented team. And I don't think people give them enough credit to how much pace they can play with. Uh, Travis Green has run very difficult training camps in his tenure as the head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. He wants his team to be in credible condition. He wants them to roll. He wants them to be able to play high intensity hockey for 60 or more minutes if they need be and when they do that they have the offensive power to to score some big goals and 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 make you really pay for your mistakes it's going to be an interesting series i give vancouver the nod a bit i just i got to see them a lot this year and i just think they're healthy number one i like their line combinations and they're poised to maybe go on a little bit of a push here and uh but they're going to have to battle a very veteran oriented 
Minnesota Wild team that has some good youngsters too that are really breaking through. So it's going to be a great series. But again, this one is a toss-up to me. I, I'm going to lean towards Vancouver in it, but it's going to be a series. How about this one? The Predators and the Coyotes. The Preds come in with a new coach in John Hines, mm-hmm. and the Coyotes come in with a new GM. And it's just a, a kind of a, two teams that a uh, little bit of turmoil this year. And that could bode well for both of them. That could bode well in the sense of that adversity has already been there. And I think, you know, we've already talked about Arizona and the Coyotes franchise that's had to deal with adversity, it seems, forever. It seems like there's always something going on with that team. And I have to give a lot of credit to the players and the coaching staff there that have been able to kind of separate that and just continue to push forward. I'm a big Rick Tockett fan, good friend of mine. Uh, I think he's a great coach, and I think he experienced from the Pittsburgh days with the way they play and the intensity they play with, got to do a game in Arizona late in the season before it paused, and, and they gave Edmonton all they could handle in that game. They were they were very aggressive, very fast, and they've got some firepower too. They've got some good young players there, and and guys that are you know trying to make a name for themselves. So Nashville on paper to me is the better team. I look at Nashville and I say this is a team that was perennially, perennially yearly. I can't get the word out. Uh, perennial cup contenders. You know, like they they seriously every single year you look at the Nashville Predators for a good five six years and said this team could win the Stanley Cup. They got to one final, but Peke Rene was not Peke Rene like this year. Mm-hmm. It was a really off season for him. Um, that's going to be a big key in their series because if as we know, if your goaltending goes south and UC Saros is getting problem for me was the better goaltender, but do you honestly, after a break like this, not give Peke the opportunity to step in there and be the starter? I think you do, but that'll be a real big key in the series. Short leash, uh, short leash if they do, right? Yeah, I think either team could win it. But uh, again, I look at these matchups and I, you know, to pick the winner is tough, but I'm going to lean towards Arizona. I think they're going to surprise the National Predators. Hmm. How about out east? Uh, the Leafs, they don't have to face uh, your son's Bruins uh, in the first round yet. Uh, maybe maybe another round, but they get the Blue Jackets. Um, what do you think about this series? <laughs> you know, they could face each other, though, in the first yeah. actual first round of the playoffs again, which is crazy <laughs> when you think about it. But uh, you know what? There's so much firepower in Toronto. I just think they have such a highly skilled team. Um Anderson is the key again, though, and I know I keep going to goaltending, but I, I just think with the layoff that's happened, you're going to need somebody to steal some games for you. You just are. And with the, with the, the risk-reward type of game the Toronto Maple Leafs play, they're going to need their goaltender to be outstanding. Can he be? Absolutely. He's shown that he can be, and he showed that he can't be. And when he's not, we know what happens there. The Columbus Blue Jackets, though, are a team for me that is dangerous. And we saw what they did last year. They dismantled the Tampa Bay Lightning. They're a physical team. They play with raw emotion. Yes, it's been a big change. But I think over the course of the year, and why John Tortorella is, is in the running for Coach of the Year is because of how he was able to get this team to buy in. And going into the break, they were a dangerous team, in my opinion. They could, they could play either way. They could play physical. They have a tremendous back end, a young skating strong back end they're not going to be easy this 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 will be uh, again uh, one of those series that you're going to need to come out early in this series and play your best hockey because if you don't you're going to lose yeah no doubt Uh, the islanders and panthers two teams that uh you know they've got some good young talent on both of these rosters and both teams are just kind of waiting to take that step forward aren't they Especially Florida for me too, Dean. I look at Florida and, and I and I honestly look at them and say similarities to the St. Louis Blues. Mm. And I know people are like, "What are you talking about?" Well, what I'm what I'm meaning by that is 
they they just had some real good, strong young talent for years, and they just haven't really been able to put it together in a situation where they just take off. But if they do, look out. And uh, you know what, Sergey Bobrovsky, we know what he can do when he gets into into a, a rhythm and plays. He can be one of the best goaltenders in the National Hockey League, and that'll be vital for them. The Islanders, though, under Barry Trotz, have done some remarkable things to change the identity of their team. They went in one year from a team that gave up the most goals against the team that gave up the least goals against, which is phenomenal, which is an incredible turnaround. But they bought in. They bought into what Barry Trotz was preaching. And, you know, coming off the Stanley Cup um, season in, in Washington, he brought that right over to the New York Islanders. And, you know, Matt Barzell is one of the most exciting young players in the game. I, I just, you know, Again, I think that this is a series that can go either way. They're really tight, but if I had to give the edge, I would on paper I would give it to the New York Islanders because of how they play. But don't don't count out that Florida Panthers team. I'm just waiting for them to make a breakthrough. Yeah, I just hope the series goes five games because there's some exciting players in uh, on both teams. And and then you look at the the Hurricanes and the Rangers, and there's some doubts about uh, Dougie Hamilton. Uh, and you know, in this this Ranger team uh, with uh, a guy who's up for the Hart Trophy and Panarin. Uh, you know, that's a, you know, you, you're always dangerous when you have the most skilled player in the series. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? And they, and they own Carolina and, uh, you know, they were in the regular season, they, they had their number. So it's, I look at, I look at both of these teams and similar in the sense they're young, lots of skill can play with speed. Um, the hurricanes have some experience from last year. They lost to the Bruins in a, in a tough series where they just couldn't get any traction in that series. But I'll tell you, the times when they played to the peak of their game, they were dominating. Even in that series against the Bruins before they lost, they, there were some periods where they were outstanding. And uh, if they can put together some, some, some sequences like that, they're getting deeper by the, by the year, it seems. Young talent, it seems to jump up there. Um, I like Rod Brendamore a lot. I just think what he stands for, how he coaches, I think the players really buy in. But uh, this New York Rangers team... Um, they're, they're a team that was really coming on strong in the end. And again, they're young. Um, there's really probably not a lot of expectation on them. So they'll come into this series as, you know, pretty free flying and loose. And that's a dangerous proposition when you have Artemi Panera on your team. Cause uh, there was a period in here at Rogers place this year in a game we did where they were down in the game, but he was all world in the third period. And uh, he was outstanding in that game. I'll tell you every time he had the puck on a stick in that third period, he was dangerous. And then the final series, the best of five, is the Penguins and the Canadians. And it, and it features two guys who, you know, not too long ago were considered the best in the world at their positions in Crosby and Price and are still, uh, you know, with the, within a, a couple of guys, the best at their position in the NHL. It, it's an oversimplification to say it's Crosby versus Price, but those two guys are going to be so massive for their team's uh, success if they are to have it. Uh, I... I... I mean, it's it's vital for Montreal. I mean, it's it's if Carey Price isn't the Carey Price of old and isn't the goaltender that's giving you a chance to win every night, then the series will be over very quickly, in my opinion. He has to be on his A game. He has to be vintage Price, and he has the capability of doing that. It's a lot of rest, a lot of time off, especially for goaltenders that play as much as Price has. This could be really good for him. But I look at this series, and I just think a healthy Pittsburgh Penguins team with Malkin, Crosby, Jake Getzel's back in the mix, uh, they're going to be hard to handle, period. They're going to be a real tough, hard-to-handle team for anybody in the National Hockey League, um, let alone a team that's had some 
you know, ups and downs in the goaltending department in Montreal this year. So I'm leaning towards Pittsburgh in this series. I just think they're one of the best teams in the league. Not too far gone. They went back to back. They're rested. Look out. They're a dangerous team. All right. What do you think the intensity is going to be of those other round robin games? I mean, you know, your son Jake is involved in them with the the Bruins. Those teams, you know, they they're they're not lose and go home, but it's you know seeding. What do you think the intensity will be compared to the the play in uh, games? It's really interesting, and I the one thing that I didn't, to be honest with you, didn't necessarily like about the format was that those four teams that have the buy into the first round actually have to be reseeded. Um, or potentially could be receded. I I thought it should just be what they are. Play the round robins to have a little bit of a, a warm-up to go into the playoffs, but don't make them to the point where you can lose your seating because of them. But that's not what they chose to do. And, and, and you know what? Listen, it does add an extra element. There's no question. It adds an extra element. I don't think home ice advantage is nearly as important as it would have been if you're playing in your respective buildings. But it still is important. It's important for situations, for last on the ice, change-ups, line matching, all that kind of stuff. It, it is very, very vital and important in the game. It could be a deciding factor. You never know late in a series. So I think that the intensity will be up. I think that if you look at those teams, they understand that they're going to be playing catch-up. They're going to be playing a team that's coming out of a series that meant a lot, meant life or death. And they're playing in a situation where they know they're going into the first round, but they're trying to catch up and be on pace the team that literally has already played a playoff series. Um, they want to hit the ground running. They really do. So I, I think the intensity will be high in those games, and I think they'll be good batters. Louis, you played over 400 games in the NHL. You had over uh, 1,100 uh, penalty minutes, but not everybody can say they were traded for one of the greatest leaders of all time and you were uh became an oiler in the mark messier trade and maybe just go back to that time messier was holding out uh, were you were you in new york watching the first game of the season that the rangers had played and then got traded or how did that uh, break down i had actually just got sent down uh the day before um if i'm not mistaken they were playing in boston or montreal the rangers were that night too i i do remember watching the game but I had just been sent down. They had to finalize the rosters, and I was sent down to Binghamton. I had a great training camp. Really felt and was told that, you know what, things going according, I'm going to get some games in the NHL that year. So I was in a, in a pretty good mindset heading down the American Hockey League for my first year pro. And I thought, you know what, if I go down there and do what I do, I will get some games up in New York that year. The very next day, I ended up getting traded. So I got called into the office the next morning, and um, – I was I was disappointed. I'm not gonna lie. When I first heard it, I was disappointed that I was getting traded because I had I felt I had kind of built up some credit with that mm -hmm. Rangers organization going to training camps, and now I'm going to another organization where I didn't know anybody, and it was you know it was starting from scratch again. But Glenn Sather called me. He called me personally on the phone that day and said, "Listen, um, it was kind of funny, typical slap." He goes, "I know you might be thinking that you're just one of the throw-ins in this deal, but we wanted you, and we're bringing you right to Edmonton." <laughs> And uh, you're going to play some games right away. And, and my mentality changed pretty quickly when he told me I was going to be coming to Edmonton. It was a team that I watched growing up. Obviously, I told you I was a Gretzky fan like every other kid was. And um, I, I knew, knew a lot about the team, but I you know, didn't know a lot of people on the team. But uh, I was excited to start uh, my career off in Edmonton and get NHL games, which I did. Um, I didn't really put... You know, I knew I was traded for Mark Messier. I knew he was one of the greatest players ever to play the game and one of the best leaders. I was fully aware of that. But when you're a young player, you're just 
you're so focused on trying to take care of your own business mm-hmm. and trying to make a team yourself that you really don't reflect and think about it in that in that that regard. But I uh, later on when I think about it, I'm, I'm I'm happy that I was involved in the trade with Mark Messier. I mean, one of the best players and biggest names ever in the sport, and um, I didn't feel the pressure from that, to be honest with you, Dean. I, I got there, and I was like I said, I was just a young kid. We were a rebuilding team. We lost a lot of players over the course of that time. In the six years that I was in Edmonton, it was a revolving door. Uh, a lot of veterans that had won Stanley Cups left the organization, and it was the bringing in of new young uh, players to try and rebuild on the fly. And, <clears throat> you know, when I was, like I said, just trying to take care of my own and continue to play in the league. And uh, But when I look back at it now, it brings a smile to my face. And I actually got to do a charity event up in Slave Lake with, with Matt and I uh, got a picture with him and uh, it's a cherished picture for me. I look at that and say, you know what, that's part of uh, of my history in the game and I'm glad that I was at least able to share um, a sentence with, with Mark Messier in some regard. No doubt. Walking into that dressing room for you in Edmonton must have been so cool for that first time, but being an oiler after the dynasty ended probably wasn't easy. I mean, we, we always heard about like this generation gets sick about hearing about the good old days. You guys would, were just right after the best days of this franchise. Yeah, it was, uh, those are some almost impossible shoes to fill or skates to fill, uh, to make it correct. But, you know, I, I, I will say this though. Uh, the fans were incredible. They really were. The fans always, you know, showed their support. And I never really ever felt like people were, I think people understood that that dynasty eventually was going to come to an end. And this was, you know, the next stage of evolution from the team. Obviously didn't like it. We weren't the same team. That's no question. But I will tell you this, the fans were incredible and they still support us just like they do today in the city. It was, uh, we always felt like they had our backs and I never felt any different myself, but yeah, you know, it was tough. I'm not going to lie. It was tough coming in there because there were a lot of similarities, but, Unlike, I, I was one of those guys that I love the stories, though. I love the old stories of the old team, and I still hear them today. And we'll do gatherings and charity events where some of the alumni and one of these stories will pop up again. And even though I've heard it 10 times, I listen intently for the 11th time because I just, I mean, this is part of the history of our game. One of the greatest teams that was ever assembled, one of the best dynasties. Uh, you know, I never get sick and tired of hearing those stories because I lived it as a fan when I was younger and um, I got to relive it through those stories from some of the best players in the game. Whenever there is a normal off season, I, I really want to get yourself and Jake out here in studio so we can actually talk a lot about uh, his career. But I want to ask you right now, you know, what it's like watching your son play um, as a broadcaster compared to as a father. I mean, like when you're doing the games and Jake is playing, is your is your play-by-play partner getting elbows and stuff because you're, you're getting so anxious? Like, what's it like for you? Yeah, you know, I've gotten a little better with it, I think. It was, it's, it's tough. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a different situation. I would like to think that I'm more controlled and professional when I'm broadcasting one of Jake's games than when I'm a dad sitting at the TV watching a game. And I'm sure my <laughs> friends would say the same thing. I get a little crazy, typical hockey dad when I'm watching my son play. But, you know, when I'm doing the game, I try and be professional, try and be down the line. And, you know, that's just the way it has to be done. Um, and he knows that too. We kind of joke about it. We've, we've had a few interactions on the ice that are special. No question about it. That. You know, I'm so fortunate. I feel tremendously fortunate to be able to see him play firsthand, be between the benches and have a chat with him on the ice while I'm doing a game. I just, 
you know, I'll come back after the game and kind of smile about that because it's just, those are special moments that don't come around too often. And I understand that. I appreciate that. But when it does come down to business, I try and be businesslike. I try and, I try and do that game like I would do any other game. And is it a little tougher? Sure it is. Uh, there was one time actually in the, in the Vancouver game, we had a nice little rush up the ice and, you know, I kind of stood up on my toes and I'm like, Hey, is he going to actually tuck one here while I'm mm-hmm. doing a game? Cause that would be the next special thing to happen with have him score in a game that I'm calling. Um, hasn't happened yet. He's aware of that. He would love to do it. He tried his best, but it hasn't happened. But you know what? It's already been outstanding for me to be able to watch him as a parent and as an analyst to uh, work games that he's been playing. And I, I, I can't ask for anything more. So it's pretty special. I can't imagine what it might be like someday to call a Stanley Cup final game uh, w- with your son in it. Uh, and that's that's thinking big picture, yeah. but that would be pretty crazy. Yeah, I and I, I got to be truthful with you, Dean. I don't know if I would really enjoy that as much because right. the stakes are so high. Um, I think that, you know, I would have to be honest with myself and say, you know, maybe as a second analyst, maybe as a guy like between the benches that could maybe spout off some stuff about different things and kind of be in the mix. Um, But that would be, uh, if that ever happens, that'd be amazing. But I I, I honestly don't know how that would be. I I don't know if I would have to maybe uh, personally check myself out of that one just because I know that last year in the Stanley Cup Finals, it was just so emotional. It was such an emotional series to go game seven to the St. Louis Blues and then to lose. Mm -hmm. Um, I can tell you, if I was calling that game, that would have been a heart-wrenching game to call for me because you just cannot disconnect that at that stage. That's for all the marbles. That's for what everybody plays the game for. And uh, that'd be difficult. It'd be very difficult, just Mm -hmm. being honest. No doubt. All right, let's wrap up with uh, one word for some of your teammates. I did this with... uh, Kelly Rudy and uh, Alain Waugh the other day, and it was a lot of fun. So I like uh, doing this. So so let's start with Peter Klima. <laughs> cagey. <laughs> you know what? I, cagey because he was just, you know, that guy went to his own drum. I'll tell you what, he was just, but he always had the angles. He was always, you know, I remember one time I was his roommate for a while, and he would open up all the windows in our pregame nap, and I'm like, what are you doing? Isn't it time to cave it up? And he would be like, no, if you cave it up, you get too deep to sleep. But if you leave it open, you only sleep lightly. Your legs get rested. You're good to go. Um, he was a KGO player. I'll tell you what, talented, but I'll say KG. That's awesome. Pokey Reddick. I think Smiley. You know, just, you know, funny. Because every time I looked at him, he's always smiling. Always had that little, you know, what grin on his face. Like he was, uh, you know, he knew something that you did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he always had that sneaky grin on his face. Um I, yeah, so I'll just say smiley because every time I look down, you smile. Dave Manson. Oh, crazy. Yeah, in a good way. In a good way. In a good way. You know, honestly, like I saw things that he did, um, he was scary. He, he was a guy that was intense. He was scary. But uh, he played hard. Even in practice, him and Kelly Buckberg would scrap sometimes, and I'd have to pull him off a of Bucky if he got him in a bad position. There'd be blood. And uh, if you pull them off, get ready because you were going to eat a few. He uh, he played hard all the time. Great individual, but uh, he was a scary dude. Doug Waite. Oh, he was funny. You know what? Doug Waite, maybe one of the one of the quickest senses of humor you're ever going to see in a hockey player. He could just come up with one-liners that, uh, and he was always so so aware of everybody in the room. You know, he was he was always, he always had that ability to kind of have an understanding of every conversation that was going on in the room. If you've been in a dressing room, you know how difficult that is with all the mm-hmm. noise and stuff that's going on. But he didn't miss too much. Just so quick and just an excellent sense of humor. 
Uh, how about Boris Miranoff? <laughs> beauty. Just, I mean, that's the, that guy was a beauty. You know what? Skill, skill that was unlimited. Um, you know, sometimes maybe not the most devoted guy, but I'll tell you what. Always, uh, always kind of had a smile on his face and a chuckle. He was a beauty, though. No question about that. Uh, yeah, there was, uh, there was some, uh, some funny stories about uh, Boris oh, Marinoff yeah. over the time, over the years yeah. that uh, different people have but, told. Yeah, he was. Uh, he vanished for a couple days <laughs> in New York one time, where we we had no idea where he was. But you know, I think Boris had just a huge heart. I think he was, uh, you know. Um, like I said, he always kind of had a pretty happy demeanor. He, you know, he'd always come with a smile and kind of be that jumpy, bubbly guy, but he was a beauty, no question about that. Yeah, that's the one people they always talk about is that the few days that he got lost in New York. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Sounds, it sounded like yeah, it was a pretty – go ahead. To be, to be honest with you, it was concerning. You know, from our perspective, yeah. we didn't know where he was, you know, and it was like, this is not good. I mean, New York is, a, is obviously a big city, and a lot of things can happen there. There was concern. There was no question concern as to where he was and what was going to happen. But uh, he did make it back safely, and that's a good thing. But uh, it was scary for a couple of days. I can't imagine what that would have been like in today's social media age. Um, you know, oh. Like that would be a disaster. I don't know if unfit to play would work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Exactly, yeah. I don't think, I don't think that would cover it. Yeah. Uh, Stefan Richet. Stefan Richet. Oh, boy. You know what? Um, that guy was a specimen. Simple as that. 6'2", 225, ripper of a one-timer, could stick handle on a phone booth. Absolute specimen of a hockey player. He had every single skill you wanted to have. Um, tremendous guy. I only played one year with him, but he, you know, he did some things even in that year. That was later on in his career that he would go out there and make a move, backhand shelf, through four people, and you just go, wow, are you kidding me? <laughs> Super talented. Dino Cicerelli. Tenacious. Absolutely would chew your arm off the score goal. He would literally bite you in the forearm, stick you in the growing, slash you, cross-check you. Wasn't the biggest guy, but absolutely paid the price in front of that net to score a goal. He was tenacious. Peter Nedved. Peter Nedved, probably smooth. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, you know, he was just such a smooth player. Everything he did, he made it look so easy. On and off the a, ice. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, he was just, he was just a pretty easy-going guy. Um, um, you know what? And had a wrist shot that was probably 110 miles an hour. You know, <laughs> could just rip the puck for a lanky six-foot-three guy. He could whip that thing. How about Patrick Steffen? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I played with him the year that he was drafted in Long Beach, and he went first overall that year, the Atlanta Thrashers. ton of expectation and pressure with him. And, 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 and you know what? Maybe he wasn't ready for that. Came over, was playing in North America for his first year and, you know, learning learning the lay of the land here. And um, there's a lot of pressure with that. But a nice kid. You know, I'm just going to say nice. He was He was a nice kid. I was an older player at that time in Long Beach and, you know, had to stick up for him a few times because he was the best player on the team and was obviously an elite talent to go first overall. But, um, you know, didn't have probably the greatest career from his perspective. Still did play over 400 games, though. Still was mm-hmm. a service player. No question about that. I'm not saying anything about that. But the pressures that come with that first overall are, are very difficult. And that was unfortunate for him because I think he was such a nice kid. 
that, uh, you know, you don't want to see anybody have to go through that. But I always enjoyed his company. It was, uh, it was pleasant to be around. And finally, one of my favorite Winnipeg Jets, Teppo Newmanen. Oh, wow. Um, I had so much to say about Teppo Newmanen, but, you know, if I'm thinking of something that describes him, uh, effortless. You know, really, he was not a big guy, would play 35 minutes in the game, and that was in an era when it was very physical and tough, clutchy, grabby. And if you saw this guy off the ice, you'd think there's no way he's going to survive out there. But he would play 35 minutes and make it look easy. It was incredible how he could just manage his space, manage the puck, would see what was coming, his anticipation, what was going to happen next, didn't put himself in trouble, and was surprisingly strong. A lot of those European players that came over, uh, we typically were doing the bench presses and the curls and you know your your different workouts. These, you know, back then, Yerke Lume and him were doing Swiss ball workouts, one-legged mm. squats, balancing, very similar to how they train today. They were ahead of their time in that regard. Um, so they might not look strong by looking at their physique, but when you went into the corner and tried to fight for them for a puck, incredibly strong. And uh, one of the nicest human beings on the planet, too, by the way. Just a, just an amazing person. And, uh, yeah, he made it look effortless out there. Oh, that's great stuff. Louie, this has been so much fun. I really look forward to hearing you on the broadcast again and watching hockey. And, uh, you know, best of luck uh, to you in the broadcast and to your son, Jake, with the Boston Bruins. Uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, Dean. Appreciate it. Anytime. And yeah, looking forward to it. I hope it's uh, what we all expect it to be. It should be fun. and more podcast with Dean Millard. Spending your time here with me And I want to spend all my time with you Big thanks to Louis DeBrusque, a Hockey Night in Canada analyst and former NHLer, played more than 400 games, had more than 1,100 penalty minutes. Lots of stuff I wanted to get to with Louis. We'll do it again. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, get uh, Louis and Jake out here uh, during whatever offseason. Maybe, maybe they'll bring the Stanley Cup if Boston wins. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, but it'll be a fun conversation between the two of them. Had Jordan and Mark Martinuk uh, last summer in studio, and, and I love getting the father and sons. I've got a few other uh, NHL um, family stories that I'm uh, hoping uh, to be able to tell on the podcast as we move along. So big thanks to Louis DeBrusque. Uh, he'll be a part of the broadcast. Uh, well, tonight I think there's the he's doing the game between the Oilers and the Flames. And also big thanks to uh, Sweet Bejesus, uh, the official band of Sports and More, the podcast. That was Falling Fast from their debut album, Policeman's Creek. You can find it on Apple Music. Time now for the Myron French question of the day. It's the ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question. And today we're talking, of course, playoffs. Yes, uh, we are talking about uh, the playoffs because that's what we should be talking about right now. Listen, I know Major League Baseball has all kinds of problems. 
I don't know what the hell they're going to do. There is like contingency plans where these teams are going to quarantine and try to make it up. Your, your, your COVID preparation and your plan is going off a cliff right now, Rob Manfred. Save face. I think they're going to have to, I don't, I, I would be willing to wager they will not finish the season in Major League Baseball. Teams are voting to not go and play in Miami. I don't know. They, the, they, the team had a, there was a team that had a vote on the weekend and decided to still play. So irresponsible. You've got, you've got to protect. And, and baseball is trying to get in a 60-game season. That's hard to do in a bubble. You're either doing that in Arizona or Florida where you have gr- uh, grapefruit and cactus league for spring training. Well, nobody wants to go to Florida. And Arizona, you can't play in this heat in the afternoon. You think it's hot in Alberta right now? It's it's probably like over 40, 45 degrees in Arizona. And you're not playing in that in the daytime. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So I don't know what the hell is going to happen with Major League Baseball. But in, in, in hockey, we at least get to talk about the playoffs. Playoffs? Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. Yeah, we are talking about uh, playoffs, Jim. And we, and there are teams that are going to win games, and hopefully they're Canadian teams, which is the poll question today. Which Western Conference Canadian team has the best chance to win the Stanley Cup? You can vote at Duck Millard on Twitter. The Oilers are blowing away <laughs> 99 votes. Gretter uh getting uh that's how many votes we've had right now is uh gretter am i hot yeah i'm hot that's a crock of crap well i don't think i would agree but uh 84.8 picking the oilers 8.1 percent picking the jets 5.1 percent picking the flames two percent picking the canucks you can have your vote at duck millard i'm in uh the edmonton area so i'm not surprised that uh this is heavily uh, to the Oilers. Um, I think the Oilers have a chance. I also think the Jets have a real chance. I don't think the Flames or the Canucks are going to go to the Stanley Cup final, but I think the other two uh, teams definitely um, have a chance. So there you go. The ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question. Find out more information at www.uffsports.com. You own the game. And let's wrap up with perfect player. And that's where we take three players to combine a perfect player. Today, we're doing NHL enforcers in honor of our featured guest, Louis DeBrusque, who had over 1,100 penalty minutes in over 400 games. So I want to know what three enforcers you would put together for the perfect player when it comes to enforcers. For me, I'm going with Dave Semenko, uh, just because of the fear factor. That guy, like he had almost like that Medusa stare that would turn you to stone because you couldn't move uh, when he was looking at you. Your favorite uh, favorite Dave Semenko story is uh, from his book. Uh, I think it's called Looking Out for Number One. And... He graduated, well, he went to the same high school as I did, Crocus Plains High School in Brandon when he was playing for the Weekings. And the, the story he tells is that he, like, basically broke into the principal's office and st- took his diploma because uh, he probably wasn't going to be around. So uh, Dave Semenko uh, for the fear factor. Bob Probert, for me, is the GOAT. 
uh, when it comes to uh, heavyweight champions. And, um, you know, like, I, I just think that Bob Probert is the one guy, like, if you had to say what's the one guy you didn't want to fight, like, Bob, Dave Semenko would scare me before the fight. Bob Probert would just destroy you in a fight and obviously gone way too soon. And Ty Domi, because this guy would just take care of things in the penalty box, as he did with that uh, famous Flyers fan. So Dave Semenko, Bob Probert, and Ty Domi, for me, create the perfect NHL enforcer. And that'll wrap things up for us. Big thanks to Louis DeBrusque of Hockey Night in Canada as well, former NHLer. Watch him as the uh, NHL marches towards the best time of the year. Playoffs? Yes, the playoffs. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please subscribe and leave me a review. Head to podcastalley.ca and check out all of the different options that we have for you. And if you'd like to be a part of this show as an advertiser, please email me, sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. As we go, we're going to hear a little uh, from Sweet But Jesus. Uh, this is the song, I Got Time, which I'm out of right now, ironically. Big thanks again to Louis DeBrusque. Enjoy the NHL playoffs as they officially kick off on Saturday. There's going to be a great amount of fun watch parties, hopefully people doing their part to stay at least uh, six feet apart from each other. Thanks very much for listening. Have yourself a great week. Enjoy the sun if you are in an area that is getting some. Playtime is over. Skin
So good. 